From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's impossible to follow the stay-at-home order if you can't get home. So there's kind of this like panic moment, like, am I going to be okay in this country? It's not my country. These aren't my rules. I don't know how to, in a sense, take care of myself. Coloradans stuck overseas. Then, have you been to the grocery store recently for essentials? Stores are still trying to restock after a run on supplies weeks ago, especially toilet paper. Is this the new norm? There's other supplies, of course, that are of greater concern, and that are cleaning supplies, which there will be a spike in demand that will be more sustainable. Plus, Colorado's music scene has come a long way since Red Rocks banned rock concerts in the 70s, sharing 50 years of music. In the shuffling This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. While we were all staying home these days, some Coloradans are still trying to get home. People who were traveling overseas when governments began clamping down to stop the spread of novel coronavirus. Flights canceled, borders closed, and some of those travelers are still stranded far from home. Sarah Head from Denver was visiting her boyfriend's family in Lima when Peru announced a quarantine and banned travel in and out of the country. All of a sudden, you know, you start getting emails, you start kind of getting that little bit of a panic feel, and it's like, oh my gosh, okay, I guess I'm not getting out of here. (laughs) Her flight home was canceled, so she booked another one, and then a third, all canceled. Desperate for information and confined indoors, had found an online group of Americans organized under the hashtag StuckInPeru. I think there's been mostly a lot of urgency because the people that I've talked to, a lot of them have medical concerns. A lot of them are seniors, Um, a lot of them, whether it's autoimmune disease or, I mean, I'm asthmatic, for example, you know, we only have a certain amount of medication to get us through this trip. So there's kind of this like panic moment, like, am I going to be okay in this country? It's not my country. These aren't my rules. I don't know how to, in a sense, take care of myself. Head says the U.S. Embassy was slow to respond, but now has started to tap people for charter flights home, although it's unclear who gets chosen and why. The lucky few get an email late in the night and are told to be at the airport in the morning. The ones left behind, scattered across the country, are socially isolated in hotels, hostels, and apartments. Head says that they lean on their virtual community for support. She's even got a group just for Coloradans stuck in Peru. It's very comforting (laughs) because there's, I don't know if I'm going to be here for another three months, if I'm going to get a flight tonight or anything like that. So especially the Colorado group, we are awesome. We're laughing all the time. It's wonderful. So it's, I'm very thankful for it. (laughs) These Coloradans stuck in Peru hope to meet each other in person when they all return and of course when gatherings are allowed. We're committed to telling the personal stories of how coronavirus is affecting lives. Send us a voice memo to Colorado Matters at CPR.org. That's Colorado Matters at CPR.org. When I shopped for groceries last week, I found no toilet paper, but plenty of bananas, mangoes, and even whole pineapples on sale. That got me thinking how little many of us know about the things we buy and where they come from, how they get here, and are they at risk because of the coronavirus shutdowns? Jack Buffington is a professor of supply chain management at the University of Denver. Welcome back. Morning, Avery. 
toilet paper has become a mascot for worries about our supply chain, a term for how products are produced and delivered to stores. Who makes toilet paper and where and will we run out? Yeah, um, maybe to start off with to explain uh, what exactly supply chains do. So what supply chains do is they're systems that connect supply and demand between suppliers in order to serve consumers. So the makers of toilet paper in the United States are big companies like Kimberly Clark. And I think what you're starting to see in your supermarkets, like you mentioned, is you're starting to see that most of the supply chain is getting back to normal because people are are less concerned with um, having the hoard supplies. But there are some areas that will take some time to fix, like paper products with Kimberly Clark and companies like that. So unlikely that we will actually run out, the supply chain is really adjusting itself at this point. Yeah, yeah. for consumer staples like toilet paper and things like that, you, you know, things will come back to normal. There's other supplies, of course, that are of greater concern, and that are cleaning supplies, which there will be a spike in demand that will be more sustainable as, as people believe that they, they need to keep their houses and their hands more safe. Um, And the greatest concern, of course, are hospitals um, where it comes to protective equipment, vents, and drugs. And so these shocks to the supply chain are both supply and demand shocks, and they will take longer to fix than some of the the smaller challenges that you're seeing in your supermarkets. So these are things that could help prevent the spread of coronavirus, or like you said, they're very useful in hospitals, so hand sanitizer, antibacterial wipes. Um, And those actually, there could be a short supply. Correct. And it's not just a short supply in the United States. For some of these items, it's a short supply worldwide. And you can imagine for hospital masks and ventilators and drugs that are made all over the world, where you'll have, you know, a few suppliers that make these products for the entire planet. Um, When everybody is seeking these in large quantities, it creates quite a shock to the supply chain. And in some cases, uh, what has to happen is there has to be an allocation of these supplies because there is not enough supply to meet the demand. These are our greater concerns. And what else is in that category of supplies that shouldn't be low, but they are? I noticed that the meat section was pretty empty, and that seems surprising in a state with cattle ranches. <laughs> yeah, I think what you're starting to see, I mean, of course, some of these things take time to grow, right? Um, so I think when it comes to agriculture, you know, you just can't um, start producing them like chemicals. It, it, you know, the supply shock will will subside. But then I think companies also have some challenges in their food safety. Um, You know, there's additional cleaning that has to happen in in manufacturing sites to make sure that the product is safe. So I think, you know, some of these materials you'll start to see um, become more available at supermarkets because people have stocked up. But I I still think that there's, you know, some concerns that we're going to have to be aware of because um, extra precaution needs to be taken to make sure our supply chains are safe. Um, and some of these supply chains have have um, farther reaches across the world than most people understand. So let's talk about those far-reaching supply chains, because my store had plenty of food from far away, like pineapples from Costa Rica, bananas from Mexico, mangoes from Peru. Do you expect that we'll continue to see those in stores? Yeah, I think um, it, it's really a difficult question to answer, Avery, because nobody really quite knows how some of these parts of the world will be impacted by the coronavirus. So, for example, 
some of this agriculture is is grown um, in South America. If there's a pandemic in their communities, there may be some concerns about the supply chain and moving it forward. So I think for now, those areas are safe, but I think everybody's just going to have to keep their eye and see what happens in this pandemic. And what about travel restrictions? Do we know how those might affect goods? From a consumer standpoint, you know, obviously... Uh, many places in the world are locked down, but from a commercial standpoint, there are a few travel restrictions when it comes to, you know, ships that are bringing products from other countries, air freight. Um, of course, transportation around the United States is ramped up in order to make sure our supply chains run. So there's, there's a big difference between the restrictions that are impacting us as passengers and, you know, the, the need for, for logistics and transportation to serve our supply chains. One thing I'm curious about is what supermarkets get what? If distributors have toilet paper, who gets it? Yeah, that's a great question. So in a supply chain system, you typically have enough production and inventory to meet everybody's needs. Uh, but when, when shocks like this occur, the manufacturer and the distributors have to do something called allocation to their their uh, retailers, and then ultimately to their consumers. So there's a process that happens in every supply chain between suppliers of if there's not enough supply to meet demand, how you're going to allocate those supplies across a large region like the United States. And that's some of the challenges that we're seeing today where um, products like toilet paper are being allocated when normally we show up to the store and, and there's plenty of it there. And will supplies be distributed fairly? I'm thinking especially about big cities versus Colorado's smaller towns and rural areas. Yeah, I, 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 you know, that, that's a good question because typically um, the big cities have the large retailers and maybe some of the, the smaller communities don't have, you know, the big Kroger's and the big, the big Walmarts. In some cases they do. So, I think it's the large retailers that are going to be much more likely to have product on the supply on, on their shelves versus the small corner store, stores that may end up being left out of any sort of allocation process. And have we seen examples of how this sort of allocation has worked in the past? I, I don't think we've seen anything like this occur, at least from my period in supply chain, which has been over 20 years. You know, there have been shocks when sorts of, of weather incidents, but Normally, inventory that we have on the shelves that are beyond production can handle that. This is uh, a completely unique situation that, that I haven't seen in my, my career. So as with so many things in this pandemic, we are also in uncharted territory. Yeah. Um, medications, both prescription and over-the-counter, where do they come from and could they be impacted by global shutdowns? Yeah, you're, you're, again, if you look at this from a supply and demand standpoint, a lot of people aren't aware that a large percent of the components for pharmaceuticals are made overseas, um, and specifically in nations like China and India. So uh, China's supply chain has been disrupted for the last three to four months due to the coronavirus, and this has had an impact on supplies for pharmaceuticals. At the same time, a lot of these pharmaceuticals are in higher demand due to the healthcare challenges. So when you have a problem uh, with supply and demand both being in shock, there's, uh, there's definitely concerns of 
being able to provide enough of this medication for for um, hospitals and consumers. Now, luckily, there haven't been too many shortages that I've heard of, but I think this is something that we just definitely need to keep our eye on. And we should say that there have been reports that albuterol, which is used in asthma inhalers, it's in short supply because it's also a first-line treatment for people with COVID-19. Um, hospitals are short of medical supplies, face masks, equipment like ventilators. How is the supply of those things different from the consumer products we've talked about? Yeah, I think some of the consumer products that we've talked about have regional or national supply chains. So um, these are supply chains that can be managed within the United States. A ventilator is an electronic piece of equipment. And so typically for electronics, you'll have components that are um, made all over the world and assembled in one place. So even if in the United States we we say we're going to make our own ventilators, there could be one or two components that are in short supplies, such as a, um, a circuit board, and that could impact our ability to ramp up um, to, to address the problems of a global supply chain. So for more advanced manufacturing in, in comparison to agriculture, the supply chains are a lot more complex, so therefore when shocks occur, it's a lot more difficult to handle things in a reactive situation. And I understand that for medical equipment in particular, it's difficult to increase production quickly because of the caution that has to be involved? Yeah, there's a lot of um, obviously critical controls that are a part of this. And also, uh, like I mentioned, in all of our manufacturing sites, we want to make sure we have even greater safety controls because, you know, there could be workers who, who are positive or asymptomatic that we don't know about. So, you know, these supply chains uh, require safety and control, and now we're at a time where we're trying to get things done as fast as possible. So there's a there's a real balance that we need to move fast while at the same time do things proper. I also want to talk about shipping because I understand most of these products come from China by ship. How long does that take, and can it be sped up? It depends on on what you're producing. So the manufacturing process in China, I think, is there. The, the challenge that I think you're referring to is once the product is made, how quickly can we get those products from China to the United States? Typically, those products arrive on ship, and so a ship will go from China to the United States in about 25 to 28 days. So what we're seeing right now in our supply chain, um, especially with uh, a lack of passenger air freight, is these products are moving r- rather than going uh, by ship, they're going by air freight to get to our country a lot quicker. So you're seeing responsiveness in things like this. Um, you're also seeing responsiveness in, I think it was just announced that these uh, quicker tests have been uh, passed by the FDA or are being ramped up in order to be able to, to complete 50,000 tests a day. So you're not only seeing some of the challenges within a global supply chain, but you're also seeing how supply chains can quickly ramp up and be innovative in order to solve some of these problems. And that shipping delay, it's such that the Trump administration actually started a program called Operation Airbridge to fly those supplies. Um, So like you said, that's more expensive, but it is faster. Right. Um, Is the trucking industry moving goods as usual? Right. So um, the, the initial delay that you saw in the trucking industry was that Companies that make goods have a forecast, and normally those forecasts are like a six-week or two-month 
view of what they think demand will be. And so these companies have arrangements with trucking companies, and so trucking companies have forecasts as well. So over the last couple of months, you've seen a shift away from some industries, such as restaurants, and towards other ones, such as supermarkets and Walmarts and places like that. So for a couple of weeks, the trucking industry was on its heels and was not able to keep up with the demand of moving goods around the country in order to get us, us consumers. You've seen a shift there where the trucking industry has moved to the areas that are needed, and now um, the trucking industry is at full capacity in order to support the supply chain as we need it to be. And there was a shortage of truck drivers even before this crisis. I wonder if people will be looking for jobs in that industry since there have been furloughs and layoffs in so many other areas. Yeah, so um, there has been a shortage in the trucking industry for the last, um, let's say, five years due to an increase in demand, and not only um, long-haul demand, but also with, with all of the Amazon deliveries that people want at their doorstep. So that's what's called last-mile delivery. And also, there's there's been pressures on the trucking industry relative to how many hours one trucker can drive. So not only are there fewer um, truckers entering the business because it's a very difficult business, uh, they're able to drive fewer hours, and there's a greater demand due to Amazon. So um, there is a need for more truckers, but that's not something that happens overnight because it's it's you know it's a critical industry, but it's also a very um, dangerous profession if you don't know what you're doing because you're driving eighty thousand pounds. So hopefully there will be some innovation and change in this labor market in order to get more truckers on the road in order to support this. And I think people are now realizing how critical truckers are to our supply chains and how they live, you know, how their lives are. And so we should definitely respect the profession and hopefully there'll be changes in order to allow more people who who perhaps lose their jobs to enter the profession. So there's a lot of training involved and you can't just put people behind a wheel. Yeah, actually, one thing about that, Avery, is is that companies are very reluctant to just put anybody behind the wheel. Typically, when a company hires a trucker, they have to insure that individual for $6 million because any sort of accident that happens could be very dangerous. So you, you can imagine how critical truckers are to the industry, but also how important it is to have the right person behind the wheel given the impact that the person can have if, if they, they're not good at their job. With such an amount of weight behind them and weighing on every decision. Um, we hear so much about goods from China getting disrupted. What about other countries? Italy has largely shut down. Do they make specific goods that we're dependent on? And this is, this is, this is a great question because this gets into the complexity of our supply chains. Is that when people think about China being the world's factory, they don't understand that um, China may assemble a certain electronic component, but that product could have components from all over the world. So it could have, you know, a speaker that's made in Germany, or it could have a camera that's made in Japan, and it could have a certain piece of electronics that's made in Italy. So you can imagine that even when we say China is ready to resume its manufacturing, if they can't get a specialized component that's made in Italy, the entire supply chain shuts down. So this gets into how complex the goods and the assembly and, and manufacturing process that happens around the world. And 
I think people are going to start to recognize this when even one country like Italy is completely shut down, what impact they're going to see that has on the goods um, that they have in their life. Jack, thank you so much for helping us understand the complexities of our supply chain. Thanks for having me, Avery. Jack Buffington is a professor of supply chain management at the University of Denver. Now a man who wants to save you money, especially important right now with people out of work. We got a voicemail from a longtime remodeling contractor, Rich Schuler of Denver. He says if you are having trouble finding toilet paper, do not resort to flushing paper towels. If you put out this warning on NPR, do not use anything but toilet paper. You can't use paper towels. And if that don't get out, plumbers are going to be happy. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I had to go out to a place and it was just plugged up with paper towels. Paper towels. So where's your toilet paper? We didn't buy any this week. Well, uh, there you go. Uh, I guess that cost you 300 bucks tonight, didn't it? So we could save Coloradans millions and millions of dollars in clogged up toilets if we just got the word out, only use toilet paper in toilets. Rich Schuler, longtime remodeling contractor in Denver. As we all stay at home these days looking for things to do, now's a great opportunity to tend to houseplants and gardens, which is why we'll get some advice from a master gardener soon. We want your questions. Let's set up your herbs for success and get those houseplants thriving. Email your questions to coloradomatters at cpr.org. That's coloradomatters at cpr.org. When we come back, a break from coverage of the coronavirus with musical reflections 50 years in the making. Let's start it with a ban on rock concerts at Red Rocks. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The coronavirus has turned life on its head. And we're here to help you handle it. Hey, I'm Sam Brash. And I'm May Ortega. And we have a new podcast full of ideas for how to live during these strange times. It's called At a Distance. Sometimes it'll be serious. Sometimes it'll be fun. And every time you'll get useful tips and tools about how not just to survive, but maybe even thrive. At a Distance, your guide to life in a pandemic. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. COVID-19 is hitting musicians and the gig economy especially hard. China and Seth Kent make up the Denver Americana band All Right, All Right. And they're doing all right. In terms of staying healthy and sane as Colorado's stay-at-home order continues, but the virus has thrown a huge wrench in their touring plans. Right now, the plan was for us to be booking a house show tour for the summer. And then we're releasing an album in the fall and then booking another tour for the fall. Now it's it's just pushed everything way back. And so it's difficult now to book October. And we're also operating on the assumption that people won't be nervous about still needing to socially distance. Exactly. In the summer and fall. And the reality is none of us is quite sure on that. And I guess optimistically, we just kind of proceed in, with hope, right? But that's not always realistic. Optimism and realism are not always the same. 
In the meantime, All Right, All Right is streaming weekly Saturday night concerts from their home studio over Facebook Live. I sent out this email like, we're going live tonight. And we had like 300 people watching our, like, it's just amazing to me. Like, this is so upside down from your normal. It's also interesting. We're not at a point right now where we're going to book a 300 seat venue. But, you know, Facebook, it's just wide open. Mama, write me a letter. Tell me we are still friends. To make up for some of the lost income from canceled gigs, China and Seth have set up have a PayPal and Venmo account that viewers can donate when they stream. People have been so generous, yeah. I, especially that second show. I mean, as soon as we started mentioning it, people were like, of course, duh. And they'd like to expand their Saturday streams to include other local musicians. My goal is to learn a new platform where we can share the screen and have a joint concert where like we'll play two songs and then I'll bounce it to another musician and they get the screen and they will play two songs. And so we can kind of do like an in the round thing, but it's everyone's in their own homes. China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right, performing their song Too Much on Facebook Live last weekend. They're doing these virtual concerts every Saturday while Coloradans continue to isolate and slow the spread of COVID-19. I know, I know, I know that I am too much. I know that I am too much to make it for you to touch. Okay, now for more music, but from the past. CPR turns 50 this year, and to mark that milestone, each month we've been looking at the state then and now. How has Colorado changed over the decades? Well, there's certainly been a lot of change in the music scene. To walk us through the last 50 years of music, G. Brown is my guest. He's the director of the Colorado Music Experience. He helped found the Colorado Music Hall of Fame, and he covered music for the Denver Post for 26 years. All right, G., you ready to kick off this music time travel? I am, Avery. Thanks for having me. It's June 1971. CPR is still less than a year old. And prog rock band Jethro Tull is in town playing Red Rocks. More than a thousand people without tickets show up to listen to the concert from the parking lot. But things escalated. A riot ensued. They had oversold the show. Promoter Barry Fay said that he should have booked two shows. Only did one. And that was really the problem. It wasn't... uh, a full-fledged riot. These were just a couple of hundred kids who 
uh, decided to cause a little trouble and, and try to get into the venue. But based on some other previous experiences at concerts, the police decided to draw a hard line. They responded with tear gas. The kids responded by throwing rocks, and it just escalated. Helicopters, all the action was on the outside of the theater, but the tear gas wafted inside the amphitheater to the crowd that had no idea what was going on. A gentleman named Livingston Taylor was the opening act, James's younger brother, and he started crying on stage, you know, what's, what's happening? It's, music is supposed to be peaceful. I always gave big credit to Ian Anderson, the leader of Jethro Tull. He continued to play through the tear gas, stalking the stage like a madman. In the shuffling Had he not done that, I think this would have gone down as a historic event in terms of the carnage that would have ensued. But he kept everyone's attention on the stage and things eventually passed. The fallout was that shows were banned at Red Rocks for nearly five years. Only soft rock acts such as John Denver were allowed. And after a point, Promoter Barry Fay sued the city to be able to bring rock acts back into the venue, and that's when things really kicked off for Red Rocks as we know it today. In the meantime, big things are happening in the Boulder area. Like in Nederland, that's where in 1972 an old barn was converted into a music studio called Caribou Ranch. Caribou was the headquarters for the Colorado scene. It started when stars like Stephen Stills moved to Gold Hill, in 1970 when Crosby and Nash were driving him crazy. He found solace there. Richie Furey moved his bandmates in Poco to Colorado later that year. Joe Walsh, Dan Fogelberg, Chris Hillman, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, lots of others quickly followed. But the tipping point was when James William Gersio, he'd established himself as the producer of the band Chicago's first five albums. He bought a former dude ranch outside of Nederland, Colorado, and turned it into the first destination studio, if you will, a resort for recording acts. Up to that point, bands pretty much punched a clock in Los Angeles or New York studios. What Gersio came up with was the idea that musicians could sequester in the mountains and have everything taken care of, opulent lodging and meals, recreation, and also use his state-of-the-art recording facility. And this was at a time, the 70s, the music biz was flush with cash and excesses, and uh, all of those aforementioned artists recorded at Caribou, as did a who's who of 70s rock. Everyone from Elton John to Billy Joel to the Beach Boys to Rod Stewart. Quite a list. Another thing we should mention about the 70s, this is when concert promoting started to become big business. Denver stopped being a so-called flyover city for musicians, and that all started with a man you actually already mentioned, Barry Fay, right? Again, the 70s saw the nascent stages of the modern concert industry. Concert promotion back then was run like a cartel, if you will. Each promoter had his territory. Someone once said it was just like the mob, only without the violence. 
And I always wonder why that qualifier was put on it. It was just like the mob, period. And the man who ran Denver was Barry Fay. Not considered a nice man by many folks, but what he accomplished was undeniable. Colorado was, as you say, the flyover for acts heading from the Midwest to the West Coast and vice versa. Back in the day, bands largely toured on the East Coast uh, almost exclusively because they could drive and play gigs every night. For Denver, it was an extra day to drive in or fly in and then another day to get out before you could get to the next stop 600 miles either direction. Faye put Colorado on the touring map. He made it a must-play market for every act. You said it was run just like the mob, period. I've got to ask, why do you say that, and was there violence? Yeah, not not on public record necessarily, but there was leveraging, you know, it's all about power and leveraging and protecting your territory, putting rival promoters uh, out of business, making sure you got the play. The music industry has always attracted interesting characters, and we had our fair share here in Denver. Is there a notable band that came out of Colorado during that time? The most commercially successful Colorado-based act to emerge in the 70s was Firefall. They had members with some impressive pedigrees. Rick Roberts was an excellent singer and songwriter. He had served with the Flying Burrito Brothers to that point. Jock Bartley, a phenomenal guitarist who had studied as a kid with jazz legend Johnny Smith down in Colorado Springs. Uh, The rhythm section was composed of Mark Andes from Spirit and Jojo Gunn and Michael Clark, the drummer who was an original member of the Birds. And they all convened in Boulder as part of the burgeoning country rock scene. And within a few years, they'd scored six top 40 hits, the biggest of which was You Are the Woman. You are the woman that I've always dreamed of. I knew it from the start. I saw your face and that's the last I've seen of my Okay, moving forward. Now we're in the 80s. Does the momentum continue in the state's music scene? The cultural landscape in the 80s was ruled by MTV, which stood for music television, not the reality show network that we're now saddled with. But MTV revolutionized the way people consumed music with a music television station playing music videos 24 hours a day, getting into nearly every American home. So that impacted Colorado when scads of the glitzy new wave bands and glam metal bands came to town. Uh, When they arrived for the first time, they usually played the Rainbow Music Hall, which was a 1,300-seat venue that was a destination for a slew of iconic acts, U2, The Police, Talking Heads, on and on. Those acts would then play Red Rocks in the ensuing years. On the other side of the state, the Telluride Bluegrass Festival had become an annual phenomenon. But for some reason, Colorado artists themselves mostly fell short of national exposure. The talent scouts from major record labels didn't sniff around the state during the 80s. That streak ended when the Subdudes signed a deal in 1988 with Atlantic Records. That was a big deal. There was even a ceremony at the governor's mansion. And Big Head Todd and the Monsters, the samples, bands followed at almost the same time. The good news is that the local 
metal, funk, R&B, jazz fusion, hip-hop, all those scenes were thriving. I give a lot of credit to stores like Wax Tracks Records. Wax Tracks had become the headquarters of Colorado's underground musical culture. Local Anesthetic was the name of the independent label run by the owners of Wax Tracks. Uh, that's Dwayne Davis and Dave Stidman showcasing the area's post-punk and hardcore bands. Now, Big Head Todd and the Monsters, like you mentioned, they're one of the breakaway acts in the end of the 80s. In the 90s, they did sign with a major label, but they kept doing stuff their way, right? They got their start on their own big records. They released their music through that imprint and toured like crazy and built up the word of mouth and had their own following. And so by the time they signed a major label deal in the early 90s, they already had their system in place. They owned their touring band. They didn't have to take a huge advance from the record label that they'd have to pay back. It was really a, a brilliant model in retrospect, and those guys deserve a lot of credit for figuring out how to navigate that scene. I was walking by the blue, blue water I was thinking about you of the 90s, I don't think of Colorado or Denver as being one of the grunge hotspots. That movement really didn't make it here from the Pacific Northwest, right? Not really. The one band that kind of had an imprint was The Fluid, a fantastic group, more punk than grunge, but they were lumped into the grunge scene because they recorded for Sub Pop Records, the independent label out of Seattle that launched the careers of Nirvana and the rest of their grunge ilk. The Fluid, uh, great performers, made some great records on an underground independent label, signed a major label deal with Hollywood Records, a label owned by the Walt Disney Company, and it wasn't a good experience, got lost in the shuffle, and they never really got a chance to get the national fame that they should have been accorded, but uh, worth investigating for any Colorado music fan. They were terrific. And without a lot of grunge on the scene, what kind of other bands did well here in the 90s? I think a lot of it was a reaction to the 80s, the flashy excesses of that scene. And it was embodied by jam bands, the groups that focused on creating unique concert performances for every show. You had groups like Leftover Salmon and String Cheese Incident and Yonder Mountain String Band. I ramble around on the outskirts of town Visions from the past fill my mind I remember the day that you went away Each and every tear that I cried Autumn chill cuts the air, leaves blow through the sky I feel your spirit everywhere, I can hear you sigh Restless wind So a lot of people ended up attending picks up in the mountains outside of Netherlands getting together, playing banjos, mandolins, and uh, working on an improvisational ferment that has created the jam band scene that we know today. Colorado has to be considered the headquarters of that particular scene. The Fox Theater in Boulder opened its doors and welcomed that subculture of 
neo-hippies, if you will, lots of other giants who reshaped the music world. You had national acts like Blues Traveler and Dave Matthews Band who found their audiences in Colorado. Blues Traveler coming out of New York came to Colorado and found the jam band culture thriving here. Dave Matthews Band, first time they left Virginia, it was to come and play the Fox Theater in Boulder. And we know what happened there. Became one of the biggest acts of the 90s. Uh, So always have been able to provide an audience for uh, adventurous musicians. And you know, Gee, while we've been talking, I can't help but wonder, where are all the women? I know the music industry was notoriously a boys' club around this time, but were any women breaking out of the woodwork in Colorado? Sure. Uh, it's... Uh, it is problematic. I um, deal with that all the time. Uh, it was inequitable back in the day, but uh, there were women who represented someone like Diane Reeves, the Grammy-winning jazz singer, uh, considered the contemporary equivalent of an Ella Fitzgerald. has always lived in Park Hill and has kept her career intact basing out of here. But that's under the radar of most popular music uh, aficionados. Just little things like that. That's always been the interesting thing about uh, Colorado music. It hasn't had the uh, big impact of scenes out of New York, Los Angeles, Nashville, Detroit, whatever. But lots of interesting little stories that put together make for a pretty compelling little uh, legacy. So we're getting closer to present day and how the music scene looks now. During the aughts, the whole record industry is in turmoil with things like Napster and the internet taking away sales and changing the way music is made and shared. But a local group breaks out during this tumultuous time? You're talking about the fray. And they did have an astounding trajectory. Uh, They went from playing gigs to friends and family to commanding international attention. They signed a major label deal, and the song Over My Head broke them. It was certified double platinum, selling more than 2 million digital downloads. debut album went on to sell more than two million copies. They were a double Grammy nominee. Uh, they turned out to be one of the most successful and visible acts that Colorado's ever produced. But it was in a climate, like you described, record labels and mainstream radio were no longer the holders of a monopoly on musical taste making. All the new technology had provided different tools. Uh, performers could grow their 
profiles, if you will, and fund their music using social media. They didn't have to get radio airplay or being mentioned in newspapers or magazines. And for the fray to emerge out of that climate was really quite an accomplishment. And with technology ramping up at this point, I think that opens the door for electronic music to move into the mainstream. Colorado-grown artists like Big Gigantic and Pretty Lights are hitting the scene in the late aughts and into the 2010s. What do you think that this says about where Colorado's music is headed? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, I think it's just a genre of music, and an old guy like me remembers Tangerine Dream and Kraftwerk, so it's hard to pin it as something new musically. Pretty Lights is quite interesting. The creation of Derek Smith from Fort Collins, he turned out to be an EDM mastermind. sorts of groups have followed in that wake, but I don't know that it defines our Colorado music scene more than any other genre. It's just something that people enjoy live. So many other acts had their moment in the aughts, from 303, a couple of clowns out of Boulder that had uh, what would be considered kind of novelty hits, the Flowbots, their song Handlebars was a huge smash, and those guys have been very inspirational in, in terms of their social consciousness. Vodka. I'm not supposed to play favorites, but they're one of my favorites. Uh, led by Nick Urata, just an amazing blend of musical genres that uh, just doesn't sound like anything else. Uh, one Republic, based out of Colorado Springs, which is where their leader, Ryan Tedder, grew up. And he tried to bring as much of the industry to Colorado as he could when he was at the top of the charts. You know, CPR's music service, Indie 1023, has this mission of amplifying local independent musicians. I wonder if Colorado still feels like a place where experimentation is encouraged and local bands have a chance at getting into those once independent venues like Ogden or Bluebird. Yeah, it's political, it's financial, it's a lot of things. If talent was the only barometer, the charts would look a lot different, I've always said. That's not just now, it's forever. Um, here in current day and in, throughout the 2010s, I really think it's about weed, isn't it? <laughs> if you're a young musician looking to, for a place to headquarter, legal weed and a thriving live scene would seem to be the most attractive option. Uh, one look at the concert listings reflects how vibrant the Colorado scene currently is. Gee, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Avery. It's always a pleasure to be on Colorado Matters. Oh,
G. Brown is the executive director of the Colorado Music Experience. He's got a new book out, too, the first in a series called On Record, which chronicles pop music from 1978 and on. All this year, we're celebrating CPR's 50th anniversary by looking at the state then and now. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks for joining us. I'm Avery Bowe.